I mean, what do you think it's going to be? Do you think it's going to be World War Three? I think to say Russia or Ukraine is World War Three is definitely a stretch, personally. I, I mean, I think it's going to have massive ramifications, like it already is. I mean, yeah. you sent me that very interesting graph of stocks in Russia just plummeting. Yeah, right? their stocks are down seventy percent. The stock market in Russia. In how many hours was that? Like, <laughs> I, I think just of the course of the past day or two, like a I mean, day or two. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah, and I mean, even in even in our markets, um, stocks have been down for like a whole week with this impending invasion, and like gas is only increasing in price, and it probably will continue to do so. Yeah. So. We're already seeing the effects. I don't think it'll be World War Three, though. I mean, what do you think? <laughs> I don't know, dude. I, I think people wanted Biden and now they're like, why isn't Biden saying anything? What? You know, whatever. And personally, I, the fact that Biden is leading this kind of scares me. <laughs> like, I would almost rather have a president that was more um, like strong in the military. Um, but I don't know. I mean... Do I think it's going to be World War Three? I think back to like the start of the pandemic, and mm-hmm. I thought that that was going to be so much worse than it panned out. Like I thought we were going to be in like total lockdown, like mm-hmm. streets totally empty, you know, like dead bodies laying around, and it was not sure, that sure. bad, right? So, do I think it's going to be World War Three? I don't know. Um, it's it's going to be interesting. <laughs> you know, I heard an interesting comment from one of my friends who uh, works in D.C. and follows politics and law and whatnot. And one interesting point he made was that, and you're kind of mentioning Biden and our military involvement. I thought one interesting thing my friend said was the U.S., we can't really get involved Uh, get our military involved because Russia has nuclear weapons. (laughs) Yeah. And (laughs) that kind of adds a whole another dimension to the, to the, to the dynamic, I guess. And um, so I guess we'll, we'll see what these sanctions um, end up doing if they end up doing anything, but I think our involvement will be minimal. What's crazy to me. So Jake and I have a mutual friend, Jenny and her family <laughs> is in the heart of this right now. That's yeah, so insane it, to me, you know. It's it's crazy. I, I, I mean, I've even seen some of her Instagram stories and yeah, um, posts, and it's just so sad to see some of those images. And you know, the other thing for Jenny, and obviously, it's very personal, but it's even like. Three years ago, I was flying out of uh, the main airport, I think, in Kiev. So, oh, wow. And that entire airspace is shut down now. I mean, that must be so weird seeing it in the photos now, you know? What was, what was normal um, not too long ago for a Westerner like us to be traveling in and out of Ukraine, say, it now is obviously can't be done at all. <laughs> no. Um, I so mean, it's, it's wild. Uh, it's weird because I've never imagined like the U S being 
a war ground. Like whenever we hear of wars, it's like happening in another country. But like to the people in Ukraine, like their homes are now like a battlefield. I mean, right. that's insane to me. Right. I mean, I even that thought even sort of crept into my mind even today where I was just thought it's moments like these where I feel very lucky to be in the U S dude. Yeah. We're, we're not going to be invaded by some power stronger than we are at our border. You know? No. Well, what I saw on Twitter, which I thought was a pretty good tweet. um, it, It was like, well, now, um, we can focus on like the real problems and what this guy was saying is ah this is almost controversial for the podcast but he was referring <laughs> sure, to like sure. kind of the social mo- like gender pronouns and he's like um uh, you know now like like now we have like an actual problem at our hand and these like mm-hmm. smaller problems like are almost going to be non-existent um and i almost think you know, as we like sway in these directions as a country, something like this does kind of bring us back to like, wow, we really do have it good in America. And kind of like what you're saying, like, wow, thank God, you know, it's a reminder that we have it really good. Um, Right. Right. Being able to see that a large scale event like this does help you help us show that uh, we like to talk about the negatives in our own country, but there's actually a lot of positives. Oh yeah, so, exactly. I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, but anyways, um, I, I initially wanted to bring you on the podcast to talk more about um, like stats and data science and your experience with blackjack. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously uh, that was before kind of this whole thing went down with Russia, but I mean, it'd be cool to go. It'd be cool to dive into some of that stuff. Um, yeah. I'm what, happy to dive into whatever. I was going to say what's, um, I don't think I told you this yet, but you have been like a tennis player for as long as I've known you. And um, I've never really mm-hmm. thought about giving tennis a try until about a month ago. And okay. my sister got me to start playing. She played in high school and stuff. And um, we've been going probably like three times a week for the past month. Really? And I have to say, bro, tennis is totally underrated. <laughs> Like, so no you're one, really enjoying it. <laughs> like I never really hear down here like oh like let's go play tennis whatever um so I just never really thought that it was like a sport worth trying but it's so much fun so who wins you or Lexi well she's definitely more more skilled <laughs> um okay <laughs> she knows proper form how to serve right um I just kind of whacked the ball over the net but right 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 I could I could uh see Cole Stryler in his beginning phase of tennis just wanting to smash the living <laughs> crap out of the ball <laughs> and then quickly realizing okay I gotta turn it down it's this isn't baseball right right that's awesome man I'm glad you're getting into it that's, that's super cool yeah. to find a hobby like that I finally learned how to hold the the racket I I mean uh-huh. you obviously know this but you hold it like kind of sideways yeah yeah a little bit to the side you don't hold hold it directly on that's I never knew that that was totally game changing. Yeah. I, I mean, tennis is like, I mean, like you said, one of my, one of my main sports growing up that and baseball, tennis and baseball primarily. And the great thing about tennis is, well, I, I feel like now for me that I'm in college, you know, it's hard to play baseball kind of recreationally, but tennis is like, you can just meet, um, 
a few people who play and just go play as long as you have a racket and a and then courts to play at. Um, and it's something you can do kind of your whole life. You know, you don't see people playing baseball or football all their lives. So it's totally, it's totally an underrated game. I, I, it I, totally I, is. I agree. I mean, I've always been a fan of like ping pong and it's pretty similar uh, layout of the sport. And it feels like you're in a ping pong game, which is pretty sick. <laughs> right. Right. What One thing once you play a little bit of tennis that I think would be cool is I don't know if you've tried pickleball before. Do you know uh, what pickleball I, is? I've seen it, but I've never played it. Okay. Okay. It's because played on a tennis I, court, right? Like a mini tennis court. Yeah. 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 So I only bring that up just because it's another fun kind of paddle sport. And I coached it a lot during 2020 pandemic. In, oh, okay. My tennis really helped me be be good at pickleball. And uh, these are just games that, I mean, they're great workouts. They uh, improve your hand-eye coordination, you know, all these things, yeah. your footwork. Um, and they make you think a little bit too. So uh, very fun and exciting games and pro tennis is also cool if you're in the sport, pro sports at all. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's awesome, well, dude. I like it because there's a little bit of game theory involved. It's like, well, if I hit it here, which way is he, is he going to go? And um, it's, it's, I, I think, I mean, not so much at the, the lower levels, but the higher levels, right. it's, you really have control over your shots and stuff and you can really put it uh, in right. certain places. Absolutely. To be deceptive, 100%. which is pretty cool. 100%. So, how long have you coached tennis? Um, I coached. I guess maybe two, two or three years and then pickleball kind of one year. I'm not uh, any, it, I'm not a pro at tennis or anything necessarily. Necessarily. Like I'm not certified, <laughs> but um, I definitely understand the game pretty well and I could teach a beginner. Well, we got to play some tennis. Have play you played some, out in Chicago? Get some shots. Honestly, dude, I have not. I, I really have not played at all. Mostly. Uh... I, BJJ. My tennis. I was doing some jujitsu, um, and to be honest, I've stopped since the <laughs> new year. Yeah, I haven't gone, and part of it is just to focus on other fitness things that I decided to prioritize more. Um, but jujitsu was was fun for a while. It just didn't quite fit into my plans when I when I sat down and decided what I wanted to focus on. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> but 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 uh, it was fun and, and you really inspired me to at least try it out and I could go back to it. That's another one of the sports that you can always go back to. And right. you could, I mean, I, I had some like 50, 60 year olds in my gym and they're just going at their own pace, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's the, that's the interesting thing about, I, I, I guess a sport like BJJ or, uh, tennis, you know, you can, as somebody our age, we can have very competitive matches against people of older ages and younger ages too. Um, you can't say the same for, I don't know, maybe basketball or speed yeah. or height based sports. So yeah. Yeah, man. I totally think so. These are things you can do all your life, which is cool. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's pretty dope. What, uh, um, what, what yeah man keep up the tennis 
<laughs> Are you doing jujitsu at all? Speaking of? No, I also stopped at the new year. Okay. I, I was doing it down in San Diego and then I moved uh -huh. and I'm not yeah. uh, joined another gym. Do you but think you'll go back? Oh yeah. Okay. I yeah. know. I, I, I want to soon. I just, I've, I've been in like a temporary living situation and right. I don't want to like join a gym and then have to leave in a few weeks. So, right. uh, so I'm not currently doing it, but I've been like mountain biking and stuff a lot uh -huh. and, and tennis <laughs> right. and dude, I recently discovered a great cardio workout that, okay. um, that I've been doing and it's jump roping. I never knew how I love jump rope good of a workout, a, a, like a solid 10 minute jump rope is, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love jump rope, dude. I got into it a couple of years ago myself. It's awesome. Yeah. And there's not only is it a great workout, but so many skills you can, you can learn with the jump rope. Yeah. Um, do you watch, do you watch this channel, the jump rope dudes? Have you seen no. their channel? YouTube? Yeah, they're on YouTube. They're... I haven't gotten so far into it that I watched videos on it yet, but, <laughs> <laughs> but maybe I'll be there soon. I don't know. No, dude, they have good workouts on their channel and they also like teach skills and stuff. Um, they're, <laughs> it's cool. I guess maybe I'm a, I'm a jump rope nerd or something. Well, what kind of jump rope do you use? Cause dude, the, it, this is like a big topic too. Like I, you know, I had this old jump rope laying around. I started using mm -hmm. it. I realized it was kind of small on me. Uh, okay. so I, I went online and I started researching like, what is a good jump rope? And there are mm -hmm. so many fucking options, dude. And I, I was researching for like two days, which jump rope. And I was watching <laughs> videos of like Floyd Mayweather and I'd like zoom in and see which ones he uses. Right. <laughs> I ended up getting like a rogue speed rope which is pretty dope um i might have it back okay. here yeah i have it right here i'll show you yeah yeah yeah. show me so i've never seen this but it has this like wire this cable see that uh -huh. and it moves. Yeah, yeah so when it hits the ground it's kind of like a suspension system it's really weird wow that's are, are those speed ropes are they meant to do do they do you well i guess maybe you don't have another jump rope for reference or maybe your old one like, does the speed rope go quicker? Can you spin it faster? Oh, yeah. Really? Dude, it flies. I, my previous one was a licorice rope. And oh, wow. Uh, it's, it's a lot heavier. The, the licorice rope is a lot heavier. Uh -huh. And it's good. I mean, th there's, <laughs> there's many different things you could do with a jump rope. Like some yeah. people, they use jump rope for, as strength training. So what they'll do is they'll get a heavy jump rope, like a one mm -hmm. pound or two pound. I think they go up mm -hmm. like five or six pound jump rope. And it's mm -hmm. like an upper body workout. It's like shoulders, right. arms, maybe like chest. Um, and it's, mm -hmm. you do it for that. Then there's like the CrossFit rope out ropes, CrossFit right. ropes, which is more of like the speed rope style where it's right. meant for like cardio endurance, um, like doing double jumps and like double triple jumps and yes. just that kind of stuff. That's more of the rope that I bought. Uh, I'm, cause I said, I'm doing it for more of the cardio. Yes. As like no, a replacement of running right now. <laughs> right. No, speaking of, I mean, the uh, I, my, my jump rope nerd style or whatever I've seen, there's some insane videos on YouTube of cross rope guys with speed ropes doing, I don't know how many double unders in like a minute. 
but oh, that's wow. like some that's like some crossfit event at the crossfit games or something and these guys like have these super light uh speed ropes like like yours i guess and that you can just do double under after double under you, you know maybe maybe a hundred i'm not exactly sure but uh no, that's or more. it's so people there's all sorts of stuff for sure you can do with it which is cool yeah um, well what else do you do so so in college you developed uh, like a really unique workout plan that focuses <laughs> on using body weight instead of weights right yeah yeah so and dude you got ripped doing this by the way <laughs> like no i, I, I think it'd be cool to, to, to learn about that yeah so really what started that whole journey was freshman year i didn't work out at all i was kind of just a slob you know i i you know there would be moments where i wouldn't work out for like months in college and then i'd be like man i feel kind of fat i need to go for a run on the treadmill and it's not yeah. like i ever got fat but um i just felt unhealthy so well what's interesting about this is kind of going into sophomore year and we had met each other at this point but I guess that part comes a little bit later, but going into sophomore year, I did some research on uh, body weight fitness or calisthenics. And I found this great subreddit called uh, our body weight fitness. And they had this routine called the recommended routine. And it was centered around uh, maybe five or six core exercises. And the idea was, you do these six correct, these six primary exercises every workout three times a week with a rest day in between and um, just repeat that. And the kind of the, the, the main exercises, I guess, <laughs> to elaborate were, uh, see if I can remember. So you, you do your push-ups, pull-ups, uh, dips um, in rows. Those are kind of the four main upper body type workouts to, to work on. And then they also recommended doing like a barbell squat and deadlift. So, okay. you know, kind of compound movements. So you supplement those body weight exercises with some uh, weighted lower body work. And that's what I really got into. And once I got into that, you know, there's other body weight stuff I became interested in, um, in terms of muscle ups and I'm working on handstands right now. So it's, uh, a lot of different avenues you, you can take it down, yeah. but I, I was going to, I was going to mention in our, our sophomore year of college, we, you, you were honestly a big part in getting me to get into to fitness because we made that deal uh, second semester of sophomore year when we had to go to the gym three times a week. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, I think we both stuck to it pretty well that semester, but yeah. that was part of what got me going initially. Dude, the, the social, uh, commitment is huge for working out. <laughs> what do you mean the social? Like when I make a deal with you that we're going to work out, that mm -hmm. is very strong you know, and mm. I will not cheat you, you know, like I'll cheat myself, but mm -hmm. I will not cheat a friend, you know? And right. I went to the gym three days. And I think it was, if we didn't, we owed each other a meal or something. Yes. Yes. That was right. The meal. 
And right. I don't think I bought you many meals. I mean, maybe I bought you one. I don't know. Maybe I bought Honestly, you a couple, but I don't I'm I'm thinking back on that semester and I don't remember really I'm not sure if either of us bought the other a meal or maybe like we both skipped one workout each so we broke even. Yeah, I, I think exactly that, remember <laughs> that might have happened once. Um, <laughs> but no, I think we were pretty good. And yeah, and I don't have and on also like when you sign up for an event, like I signed up for that ultra marathon last year, and my yeah. brother uh, is now doing like these Ironman races. Like when you sign up wow. for an event, like you have to train. Like training is right. not an option. It's not like oh, do I want to go on this run this morning? Like you are mm -hmm. running. That's just part of your day. Uh, yes. So making it like a necessity is key i think because if not right. like or at least i do this I'm, I'm like too easy on myself i'm like eh, you earned a day off um <laughs> <laughs> right right you know but i want to go back to your workout plan uh because yeah. kind of through high school and um mm -hmm. even just at, like in college what a lot yeah. of people i noticed did uh was choose a body a section of your body for Monday and another section for Wednesday and another section for Friday. And mm -hmm, then, mm -hmm. um, so, so like push day, pull day legs, something like that. Yes. Um, but yours is kind of one complete workout, right? Like you do the same workout every day. R right. So every time, I mean, right. So the general structure was I was going Monday, Wednesday, Friday, um, to lift and the whole idea, you know, you need a rest day in between your your big workouts. So, um, exactly. My, my approach was each time I went each Monday, Wednesday, Friday, do a full body workout where I hit all of those exercises I mentioned before, push-ups, uh, pull-ups, dips, rows, and either squat or deadlift. That was what I was doing every single workout. And so each time was kind of a full body, uh, workout. And mm -hmm. I don't necessarily, I've tried the, the push pull, um, kind of a push pull split. Like even last quarter I was doing, a, a Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. Um, it wasn't a push pull. I guess it was an upper day, a lower day and then rest and then back to an upper day and then a lower day. So it was similar to what you're saying. And I don't necessarily think one is better than the other. I think they can, they each have their advantages and disadvantages, like pretty much anything. And what's better sort of depends on what your goals are. Um, yeah. But yeah. And I think what, what we also need to say is uh, with this fitness stuff, like diet kind of reigns supreme, I think. And uh, that's one thing I've also tried to focus on. So, yeah. No, me too. Um, with diet, I've realized small changes, uh, go a lot longer way than like crazy radical changes. Like I've right. tried in the past, like, okay, for the next month, I'm going to do this very strict. I, I mean, I, when college, it was no bread, no pasta, no <laughs> added right. sugar, no potatoes, um, no dairy. So it's like no food, basically you can eat fucking carrots. And like, I, I did that for a month because right. I made a deal uh, with a friend that I would do that. Right. And I lost 10 pounds, but then you did the okay. second, the second that diet was up, I went back to my, my normal eating habits and I gained it all back. So mm. 
mm-hmm. for me, the, the radical change diets don't work. So in, instead, I try to just like steer the ship slightly and, and hope that yeah. in the long run, it, it's a bigger difference. So what I did, uh, what I'm doing now is I cut out added sugar since October. Okay. Uh, I, I don't eat added sugar. I don't buy it. If it's if I go to my grandma's house and there's sugar in the mm-hmm. sauce, I'm not going to worry about it. Like, right. you know, if of it's course. in something in a small amount, it's like whatever. But yes. um, like 99% of scenarios, I won't eat added sugar. And that actually got me through the holiday season uh, in pretty good shape. Usually the holidays come around and I'm like, wow. all right, for the next two, month, two, two months, I'm eating cookies and chocolate and all that crap. Yes. And I think this whole holiday season, I had half of a cookie. Wow. Yeah. That's very disciplined. That's, that's pretty insane, honestly. Yeah. Thanks. Did you eat pie on Thanksgiving? No. Really? I ate half of a cookie. Yeah. No way. Wow. That Um, is next level restraint. Yeah. It's, but, but the thing is, dude, is now things are so sweet that like, I I don't want sugar. Like a, I think a bowl of Mm -hmm. ice cream I haven't tried, but I imagine it would just be way too overwhelming. Um, Mm -hmm. And the reason I did this, Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I, I was just going to mention, I thought what you were saying earlier was interesting, not only as it relates to diet, but also any aspect of life. Like when you make the difference between sort of a radical change and sort of a slower, more progressive easing into a new routine or a new mm-hmm. diet, right? I think the difference is people make radical changes because they're very sort of motivated initially to make those radical changes, to implement those radical changes in their lives, right? Like at the beginning of that kind of crazy diet, no bread, no pasta, no potatoes, you're very motivated. You're like, I'm going to do this, right? But it's almost too radical that when your motivation suddenly drops, like there's no sort of discipline left behind it. There's you know? no mechanism that keeps it going. Well, that's where discipline comes up, comes in. It's discipline is when motivation wears too. off. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, hundred yes. uh, percent. So last year at the start of COVID, um, my good friend Gabe was in town and he wanted to get me into lifting. Um, well, mm-hmm. I, I wanted to get into it too, but he was obviously the leader of this workout group. Mm-hmm. And um, for the first, I, I mean, one of the first workouts we did, I was trying to match his pace. Now he's been lifting for the past four years and I, okay. I had not really been lifting. So uh-huh. me trying to match his pace was painful. Like I could barely get the bar up. My form was horrible. I was using the wrong muscles for certain things. <laughs> and I, I realized I was like, dude, I got to slow down for like the first month um, and just work my way into it. And that's what I did. I, instead of lifting with 25 pounds on each side, like I would just lift the bar and just develop yeah. good form and like build the small muscles the right way. And I worked my way up and working out or lifting weights got so much easier after like two months. And it had never been that easy when, when you, because I'd never worked on the form and taken it slowly. It's like, I always just jump right into it. Uh, and then it's hard. Right. So, uh, right. Yeah. I think there's, there's a motivation component, like we talked about and exactly what you said, like there's also kind of an ego component. You see similar you see similar people your size maybe or even smaller lifting a lot of weight so you kind of want to get up to that super quickly when really it's 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 not feasible and not really healthy for you so the ego component is is real for sure too and even when i think people get good at things obviously you're 
ego always plays a role. So I feel like that existed in college too, in like the academics of it, uh, specifically with math for me. Like I would jump into a, a math class that I probably wasn't prepared for and mm. um, like attempt these hard problems when in reality, like I should have gone back a year and like focused on kind of the easier problems and like nail those down, you know? Um, right. So it's like kind of figuring out your entry point and <laughs> like realizing right. being honest with yourself, like where you're at. Right. Um, yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting because um, well, on your note, it's, there's a lot of pressure in college, say, and to graduate on time and, you know, your parents don't want to pay your bills or whatever for five years instead of four, say. Yeah. So it's tough. And I think, you know, like the, like the wise man once said, <laughs> there's sort of a, with any skill in life, right? Like once you start getting good, you, you might start getting a little cocky, but the man who actually knows the most, the more he knows, the more he realizes the less he, he doesn't knows. know anything. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, so, um, I think that's absolutely true for, <laughs> I mean, whatever it may be in life. Yeah. Beginner's mindset. Um, yeah. so yeah. how difficult was it for you to learn blackjack? Like how long did that take? I guess for, for those who oh, man. are listening for the first time, um, <clears throat> Jake, would you say you were a professional blackjack? Back blackjack player or how would you uh, <laughs> yeah you did it for a I, living for a solid half I a year it. yeah i i i was uh playing blackjack counting cards on a team for uh, i guess five months five maybe six months um last year and it was sort of a pandemic project um and it you asked about how long it took me. I would say um, probably 150 to 200 hours in that range. Um, so I guess maybe what I would say is if you say somebody who didn't know how to count cards, right? If they, you know, the average work week is 40 hours a week um, times four weeks a month is 160 hours a month. I think that if you practice full-time, you know, 160 hours in one month at blackjack, you, you could do it. You could be ready to go. Um, so I think it took me, um, maybe around 175 hours say, but over, I, I went very slow over the stretch of three or four months, even, um, and uh, we can talk more about the details about <laughs> what that involves to be like, but that's my rough ballpark. Yeah. Well, what's fascinating about blackjack is you are taking a probability that's against you and you're slightly raising it to be in your favor, right? Yeah. So the, the general consensus was a perfect card counter in the long run has probably a 1% edge, a 1.5% edge over the casino. Like it is extremely small, extremely small. 
Um, exactly. And, and like you said, without counting cards, the casino has the edge. And by counting cards and playing basic strategy and uh, these sorts of things, you can you can uh, gain an edge. The very small one, but it's there. Yeah, and that edge is the reason why you guys do it. That one point five percent—that's where all the profit is. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And it's blackjack is a crazy game because, like we're saying, the edge is so small and. <laughs> What that means is you can go on some pretty unbelievable, unbelievably long losing streaks and despite perfect play, right? Like um, there have been plenty of professional players who play blackjack completely full time, who I know have gone on losing streaks of like 200 to 300 hours. Yeah. And it's pretty unbelievable to think, at least for me, that these professional blackjack players or advantage players as they're, as they're called (laughs) can endure such long losing streaks on the road, traveling with a family. Um, And it's, it's, it's frowned upon by, by the casino, you know, they're trying to get rid of you. (laughs) Right. So it's (laughs) not like how many casinos have you gotten kicked out? How Uh, many casinos have you gotten kicked out of now? I could pull up a list. I think right now for me, it's about 35. American casinos. <laughs> so you basically so, play until you get kicked out. Right. And there's sort of an interesting philosophical debate um, that some blackjack players encounter or advantage players encounter with, with uh, getting kicked out. Our, our team played very aggressively. So we were kind of like, screw it. We're, uh, we don't plan to play at this random casino outside of San Diego ever again. So we're just going to burn it to the ground. Right. And play as aggressively as possible. Whereas maybe if, um, you know, you have some very uh, local casino with great rules, very advantageous rules for the player. um, You might want to not play quite as aggressively to make, to make it last longer. So you can accumulate more hours and more expected value. Um, so there's sort of a, um, a push and pull and, um, a trade-off between playing aggressively and not playing aggressively there, which was interesting. And how do you keep track of all the data to make sure that you're hitting your targets? Um, I I know that you guys keep track of hours and expected value over a certain number of hours. And you were the guy on the team that did all the the data science. Um, (laughs) so what, how did you keep track of everybody and what like metrics do you use to, to make sure that you guys are on track? Right. So we learned from, we learned blackjack from this, uh, this, I guess it's a company called blackjack apprenticeship, which is anybody can sign up and be a member and learn to count cards if you really want to. And the great thing about, about that service is they have, um, a lot of betting software. And so we could plug our bankroll in. Bankroll is like our total pool of money we're playing with. We could plug our bankroll in, um, the rules of the game, like double deck or six deck. Uh, If you can double down, if you can split, we can plug all of these uh, parameters into this software and it would output our expected value per hour. Um, And so, so using that, 
kind of using that software, we were able to figure out what our expected value was, our variance, standard deviation, these things. And I, uh, as you're alluding to, I made a, um, it was a shiny app, an R shiny app, where players on our team could log every single session they played, uh, you know, the number of hours, who they were, what the rules of the game were. And um, I could basically, it was sort of like a Google form that would input into a Google sheet and um, we could run analysis in R on that data. So that's how our team did it. It was, it worked pretty well. Um, yeah. And we could make plots showing like your expected value versus number of hours played. And um, that way we could, we could see who's performing well, who's not performing well and kind of diagnose our play accordingly. Yeah. Um, so you took a activity that a lot of people would consider to be gambling and you made it mm -hmm. more of an investment strategy. Um, so what, <laughs> right. and this, this is a topic that we talked about the other day. Yes. Um, it, it's like, what, what makes it, what, what is the distinction between something that's investing and gambling and the, mm -hmm. The thing that first got me thinking about this was um, my dad was always very anti-Bitcoin and he always told me it was gambling. And yes. the more that uh, I started lear like learning about blockchain and um, learning about coding and I felt like I was getting a lot closer to Bitcoin, um, it felt it, it didn't feel like it was gambling. It, it felt like an investment. Um, but then I, I, I started thinking like, I don't think you can say one thing is an investment or gambling um, without looking at like your, your level of certainty with it. Um, and mm. I think for different people, it can be different things. Um, so for example, my, let's say my dad bought Bitcoin and in his mind, he has no idea what it is. Literally, it's just a name on a screen and he clicks buy. Like I would say that that is gambling. Um, mm. But then when you get closer to it, closer to the technology, and you see more of the, like the certainty in it and you have a right. better gauge, a better estimate of its chances of success, um, it then becomes investing. And that mm -hmm. seems like that's kind of the case with blackjack, right? Blackjack to 90% of people, um, mm -hmm. it, is, it is a gamble. Yes, yes. I, I honestly, I could not agree with you more to be, yeah. That, that I think that's a great way of putting it. The level of certainty is absolutely crucial, right? And I, once we had that conversation, maybe last week it was, I was sort of thinking about what, what is gambling versus investing? Like <laughs> what makes an investment a smart investment? Yeah. And I think one way of thinking about it, and this is actually not my term, my adage or my, I did not come up with this term, gambling with an edge. Right. So ah. maybe we could say that smart investing is gambling with an edge. And um, I actually heard that from like a blackjack podcast. So that's not at all yeah. my term, but I think it's actually really uh, a really great way of putting it. It's like if you are certain um, that you have some kind of advantage and that you can expect to win in the long run, then it's smart investing. Right. Yeah. And you, you know, you even bring up crypto and whatnot right now. It's, uh, 
you're very certain about Bitcoin, say, but like me personally, I'm not, I don't know. I don't really know anything about crypto. So you can maybe invest in some kind of crypto and it's an investment for you, but for me, it's gambling. I, I totally agree with yeah. you. Yeah. Um, and, and investing doesn't mean that it's certain either. Like me saying I'm <laughs> investing as Bitcoin as an investment. That's not me saying, you know, it's a hundred percent certain. I think it just means that. Oh, I think, absolutely. I think the probability is in my favor. Um, yes. so it's, it's a matter of probabilities, not, not necessarily certainty, but it's, uh, or not necessarily like being a hundred percent certain is what I mean. Right. No. And I, I think people really struggle to, uh, you know, I think a lot of people maybe struggle to understand that just because you have some advantage, uh, does not mean at all that you're going to win, no. right? Like, um, obviously with any investment, there's a chance you lose your investment entirely, whether, and it could have been a priori, you know, uh, an excellent choice, right? Yeah. Like, um, you know, the, 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 the cool thing that Blackjack uh, showed me, and I think some of my teammates is that these events, uh, where maybe you win a lot of money in a quick amount of time, or you lose a lot of money in a quick amount of time. These are events, say, at like, you know, kind of the tails of a normal distribution, right? Like um, more than two SDs away from expected value, say. Like playing blackjack, like showed me that these events happen, right? And, you know, in a very sort of visceral way, when, you, you know, you're playing with your money, other people's money, like it's very personal and you're like, wow like unlikely stuff really does happen. Yeah. So I thought that was a really kind of interesting and valuable lesson to, to take away from, from the whole blackjack stuff. Yeah. Well, so you're saying, um, what, what you just said is like, you know, investing um, with an advantage is like smart investing. And I would even add on to that and say, investing with an advantage is investing. Um, like I would never want to invest right. when I had a disadvantage, you know, um, right. like you shouldn't be taking those investments. I think as a general rule of thumb, like right. my, the condo that I bought, I, I was yes. not in the market for a, a home the day before I bought it. I was not even thinking I was going to be <laughs> buying a home within the next 10 years, but mm -hmm. a deal popped up that I couldn't turn down. And that was my advantage. And I knew that, um, on any other property I would have paid you know, just been another buyer at the market price, but I had a deal in front of me and it was an advantage. Um, and yes. this whole like buy low, sell high. I mean, when you're buying low, you're buying at an advantage. Um, so right. I think, yeah, you should really only <laughs> take, not only, but most of the time you should take investments where you have an advantage, I think. Right. Yeah. And maybe, maybe we just shouldn't even call investing if you don't have an advantage. Like it's at that yeah. point, it's just straight up gambling, you know, <laughs> it's straight up gambling. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, man, that's an interesting point you bring up. I mean, it just, we even have another close friend. I don't know if I should say his name. Or, uh, I don't really know, but who also bought a house in, uh, Austin, a very great market. And, yeah. uh, you know, obviously hindsight is twenty twenty, but I think for him, it was absolutely an investment too. Yeah. Um, and 
you're, you're talking about buying the dip and it just reminded me of how we started off this conversation with the whole Ukraine stuff. Like is, yeah. is, is now the time, a time to buy? Like maybe in Ukraine, is it, is it a time? <laughs> if you're, yes. I mean, it's down 70%. Um, well, <laughs> Russia is, uh, I mean, I, I just, I don't know if they're going into world war three, I, I don't see it coming up mm-hmm. anytime soon. Um, yeah. I, that would be yeah. a gamble. <laughs> right. Um, but then again, I mean, everything we do in life to, in some sense we do because we have an advantage at that, like riding motorcycles, mm-hmm. right? Like my, adva- my advantage was my whole family did it. So mm-hmm. as a child, of course I'm going to ride motorcycles, but I have friends who grew up in this town, obviously who don't have right. motorcycles and they're at a, they're at such a disadvantage, right? Like if they want to start riding, they have to wait till they can afford one on their own typically, which is like 18, yes. 20 years old. And then they, I mean, if you don't learn when you're a kid, typically mm-hmm. you'll never develop like the the same coordination that someone who did has. And right. there's always like a little bit of a learning um, or skill disadvantage. So, you know, why do I learn motorcycles? Well, it's, I had an advantage. <laughs> why did right. you learn how to ski? Well, you lived in Colorado, like you had an advantage. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and I think we totally enjoy the activities more that. We're, we're good at because we maybe started them from a young age or we were in that environment from a young age. Um, it, it's just more enjoyable. Um, you know, you don't see any, any uh, chess grandmasters who, who learn chess at like age 20. Like it just doesn't no. happen. Right. No, exactly. Or somebody learn a new language. Uh, you can learn a language, I guess, really from any age, but it, it gets increasingly, dif- increasingly difficult. Well, athletes too. I mean, you know, baseball players, like everyone starts when they're young. So the advantage they had is probably they had parents willing to go through that. I mean, I think a lot of parents aren't willing to invest the time or money into raising a professional athlete. I mean, it's, it's not easy. Right. Yeah. Isn't that really interesting though? This idea that life is, I mean, every decision you make has some element of risk, right? Yeah. Like there's some element of risk reward, um, you know, positive, negative payoffs, <laughs> you know, what, what do you expect to happen? These sorts of well, things. That's, I think we think like that because of this statistical lens that I've been talking about, dude, I swear right. after taking, um, probability theory in college, I cannot yeah. unsee the world through a statistical lens and right. it's all expected values and trade-offs and distributions and probabilities. And it's, it, it's cool. I mean, I think it's really good. Yes. Isn't it? I mean, it, it is, it is fascinating in a lot of ways. Like I think one of the reasons I was drawn to statistics is because I see, and I, I think you do too, stats as a way to not only make smarter decisions, but it's also a way to sort of seek out truth in a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Right. Like what is, uh, are our sort of, um, natural inclinations, are they right or are they wrong? Um, wait one sec, Jake. I, uh, I just got a call and it disconnected my headphones. Oh, no worries. Okay. Can you say something? Test, test, test. Oh, there we go. Okay. Okay. All right. I I can hear you now. (laughs) Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, no, I was, I was just saying, I think um, stats is a way to see 
truth in a lot of different things in the world. It's not the only way, but I think it is, it is certainly a way to do that. And um, looking at data and by analyzing our own decisions and biases, we can really learn a lot about people and systems in the world. So I think well, it cool absolutely is- helps us. Yeah, hundred um, percent. I was gonna say what, what's cool is day one of data science uh, instruction. I was told data science is about decision making, and if you mm-hmm. think about that at like a deeper level, that's absolutely insane, right? I mean, or insane as in like mind blowing. Um, like we are just basically trying to increase the probability of making a better decision, and that's why, uh, you know, we've there are these terms like data-driven companies. These are companies Mm -hmm. that they don't really make the next step into the dark with intuition. They make it with data. And it's almost like the data makes the decision for them. And they are just readers of the data. Like that's what a data-driven company is basically. Uh, Right. So that, I mean, that's pretty cool. Right. Yeah. And we, you know, the, the cool thing is that behind sort of those algorithmic data-driven decisions, there was a team of humans probably um, devising some model or some system or some algorithm to help the company or the team make a better decision. So I also think it's very attractive, this idea of um, helping ourselves and helping others make better decisions through you know, some of these data science and statistical tools and techniques. Um, yeah, as a way to gain an edge, right? Like, it's, yeah. it's absolutely at play. Yeah. Um, what, what do you think, like, like where is it headed? <laughs> Man, uh, that's such, a, such an interesting question. And I almost feel uh, totally not qualified to say just because <laughs> of my lack of work experience. I'm still in school. But um, I think, I mean, some initial thoughts I have is, you know, it's interesting how, uh, you know, I'm kind of interested in, I guess, chess as a game, right? And like a computer will beat a human in a chess match every single time now. Um, Which, you know, maybe a human could beat a chess engine in a game, but in a long-term match, no chance, right? Um, and I, I even remember sending you a link or a, a picture of something from some news article, maybe this was a month ago, about how there are, I guess, AI or <laughs> programs that are like competing with humans in coding competitions and scoring pretty well. Yeah, I, I don't dude. know if you know anything about that. Do I don't know much about it, but I do know that, I mean, the, the, the kind of discussion that I've been hearing of like the next companies um, is that they're building AIs to basically code as a replacement to like a, a human engineer. Right. And I don't even understand what that means because so much of coding is creativity. Like coding is not... Mm-hmm like two plus two equals four. Like mm-hmm. it's like, there's many ways to get four. And oftentimes it, you're not trying to get four. You're trying to get something that works like four and looks like four, but is mm-hmm. unique to itself. 
Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, a game of chess, there's a certain environment in which, and there are rules that must strictly be followed. Um, like the mm-hmm. knight can only move up to and over one. Right. Yes. But in coding, it's, it's like painting a picture. Like how do you train an AI to be creative and to think right. far ahead? Right. Like, I mean, a lot of, and I, I doubt that when they say AIs are going to be coding, like they're talking <laughs> about the full spectrum of a project. Right. But um, I'm sure that it's probably just a smaller section of it, but right. Or like, Hey, auto generate this template and then, the human will come in and modify the template, but a, a lot of coding requires forward thinking and mm-hmm. kind of envisioning what the future of this project is going to be like and how mm-hmm. it's going to need to scale. And you want to build a solid foundation today so that, I mean, the way I like to explain it is like, you're building a hotel that later mm-hmm. on, you're going to want to put more floors on, right? So how do you mm-hmm. build a strong foundation so that you can add layers to this hotel later on? whether it's vertical layers or horizontal layers. And I think a good way, like a good example of something that can scale well is like a Lego, like Legos, right? Mm -hmm. You want to basically build your application like it's a Lego, you know, a a set of Legos where you can just always add it and change it and keep building on it and remove Mm. things. Like you don't want it to be too uh, set in stone. So anyways, what I'm trying to say is how do you train an AI to do that? I don't know. How do you train an AI to really encaps or to capture that the design piece and the forward thinking, right? In the right, right. To think, oh, where might scale be? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, It it is crazy to think, though, that you know there was the industrial revolution and where machines, you know, started replacing people on assembly lines and whatnot. And now maybe there are, there are some applications perhaps where uh, AI or whatever you want to call it could replace somebody like you, a software engineer. Like we're yeah. actually, we could be there in some respects. Yeah. Um, but it's also, I think, I think in a lot of respects, in exactly as you're alluding to, there has to be an element of both sort of there has to be a human element combined with sort of a technical, mathematical, algorithmic element. Element Like I think the ideal sort of company or the ideal sort of team kind of is a blend of both a human and sort of a more technical side, right? Yeah. Um, I don't think completely going in one direction is ideal. And you even see that, right? Like these data-driven companies started out performing traditional human intuition-based companies or intuition-based decisions. Um, But I think by the kind of the same token, we can't go too far to the technical uh, side. Yeah. Well, I I don't think it will. Um, I mean, obviously that's the discussion. I don't think it will is my opinion. Um, I, I think what we'll likely see is AI and just technology in general, replacing the laborious parts of our job, the mm-hmm. thing, the repetitive parts, the non-creative, the, all right, screw the bottle on a cap 600 times in a day type mm-hmm. jobs. Now 
obviously that's very industrial, but stuff like that does exist in the software world too, where you mm-hmm. do something and you're like, why did I just do that? Like <laughs> literally that was so pointless, you know, yes. um, there are those types of things. So I think we'll see technology and, and AI replace, like I said, more of the uh, boring repetitive parts of our lives and kind of leave the creativity to us. I mean, how sick would it be if your job was only creative work? You showed up three hours a day, you make some creative decisions and you go home. And meanwhile, the, the, the robot right. is doing the eight hours a day in the background for you. Um, which <laughs> it'll do in minutes because it doesn't need eight hours a day. Um, right. I, I mean, this, this concept of an eight hour workday is just, uh, it's so draining, I think, when, yeah. when you're in it for, I've been doing it for almost two years now. And it's so pointless to sit at a desk for eight hours a day. I mean, mm-hmm. I get it if you need, like if your output directly correlates with your, your, the number of hours of input, right? Like if mm-hmm. eight hours of work means 1000 caps screwed on a bottle, then yeah, like maximize your hours. Sure. From the employer perspective, like if I was a company owner, I would want mm-hmm. my people working eight hours a day in a creative field and a problem solving mm-hmm. field. Uh, it's, I think it's irrelevant how many hours you work in a day. Mm-hmm. I think it should only be measured on output. Uh, sure. Right. And right. I, it's like, we still got these old habits as a society that I think will end in our lifetime, but we're, I mean, we're kind of at the frontier of it. Like it's some companies are starting to realize it, but a lot of the mm-hmm. bigger ones are not yet. Right. Um, right. So I don't know. I what's mean, your take a, on, what's your opinion on sort of like a, a day, your average week in college versus a week doing what you're doing right now in terms of time management, energy levels, et cetera. I think college is going to feel a lot more like the future of work where you are basically a contractor for many different projects. And those projects are short-term, some are long-term. You come in and out of them when you want. And when you're not directly working on a project, you have free time. So that's kind of like how class works, right? Like you choose to take a class, you take that class for a semester, and then you move on and you can choose to have openings in your schedule. You can choose to just take a day off. You just skip class if you don't want to go to class. <laughs> right, I right. think that is what the future of work is going to feel like. Um, oh, and okay. I think my output was also a lot higher in that environment because mm. I was the one being measured. It was me. I was graded for my output. And in the workforce, you kind of lose your sense or at, at a big company, you yes. lose your sense of individuality and you are now a tentacle of this company. And mm-hmm. it's not necessarily you that's measured. It's your department or it's the sales. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a, a metric that you are almost not really in control of. Right. And the pace is so much slower. Uh, and it's, it, I, I think the, the problem is, is not only are you not measured on your output, but you're also not paid for your output. And I think those two are correlated. Um, uh-huh. you, you have a, a salary for the year and I mean, there's some level of expectation of output, but typically you figure out what that output feels like that minimum level. And a lot of people just ride that minimum edge. Like they, they mm-hmm. stay slightly above it. 
So they're getting their, their stuff done, but there's no incentive to do even higher, right? Where mm. it's in college, you're constantly striving. You're like striving for this maybe unattainable goal and you fall short and that's maybe a B plus, but like, Hey, or an A minus, <laughs> like, Hey, that's not bad. Right. Like I strove for an A plus and I fell short and got a, a, a minus. Whereas yeah. in, in the workforce, it's like you figure out like how to perfectly get a C. <laughs> <laughs> right. So you, you sort know? of, you know, you don't do so bad, you get fired, but you don't no. do, you're not striving either. Um, I mean, do you feel like part of that is the pandemic working from home say? I think working from home is a big part of it, but I mm-hmm. do think the incentive structure in general of working at a fixed salary job, eight hours a day, that is just the outcome that you're going to get. I, that's, yeah. I mean, my belief at, at a, at a level where people are expected to perform with their knowledge. I'm not necessarily saying this with like physical laborers. Um, uh-huh. Because like, if the company expects you to screw a thousand caps on a bottle a day, like you better do that. Like there, and that might be a lot of work, but in a job where, um, it's more creative and problem solving. Right. Uh, yeah. I, I would say, yeah. Like what's the point of just sitting at a desk for eight hours, uh, yeah. being required to do so. Right. Like as yeah. long as you're you're doing what you need to be, what you need to do. So. Exactly. But yeah, I, I kind of miss the pace of college, to be honest. Yeah. Do you I really? Def- okay. I do. I do. I feel like I was doing better work. I see. I, I'm only just curious because I'm about to sort of become like you in some ways. Don't and, do it. Uh... Don't do it, Jake. Join, <laughs> well... join Thomas. Thomas is starting his own business. <laughs> yeah, a bit. Have you talked to him? We text a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I certainly, you know, cause I sort of felt some of the freedom that you were talking about from uh, like card counting last summer. Yeah. And you're, so, I was sort of on my own schedule. Right. And that there's a lot of great things about that. Um, now we'll see how the, the baseball job turns out and maybe I end up really loving it. I think it could be a dream job. So dude. Yeah. So I'm excited to see. Hopefully I feel like more than an octopus tentacle swimming in the deep sea <laughs> with more of a mission. Did, did you feel that way at the, the Dodgers when you worked there? That was kind of the uh, you know, nine to five situation a little bit. A little bit. Um, a little bit. And I think part of the reason is I just did not know much at all about data science or statistics i could code i could write a lot of our data sort of data wrangling data cleaning code and some sql queries but kind of even what you were saying earlier like that kind of work is very mechanical not super creative or interesting right so maybe that's something that could be automated in the future right So I think with the Dodgers, it was cool. I mean, it was absolutely cool working in uh, Dodger Stadium and um, around a baseball team and a sport I really, I really love and um, will always love. But uh, there was some element of my my depth of knowledge was, was just so shallow that I couldn't. I had trouble maybe connecting with some other guys in the office on their own work 
And um, now that I think I know a lot more, at least I think I know a lot more, uh, yeah. the work will be much more interesting. Dude, I never knew that every baseball team had like a statistics team. Yeah, I mean, it's like what we were saying earlier in terms of kind of starting with the Oakland A's and the Tampa Bay Rays back in the early 2000s. These teams, they didn't have an advantage uh, in terms of payroll, in terms of how much money they could spend, like the Yankees, right? Like the Yankees were the richest team. They still are the richest team, right? So these smaller teams with, with less money had to find a way to gain an edge, right? Exactly what we were saying earlier. And so they started using some statistical methods and, you know, data, basically early 2000s data science, right? To, to get an advantage and actually start winning. And now everybody's doing it. So it, and some teams are taking it further than others. Um, like I was saying earlier, I think there's still a human uh, element and human component that has to be accounted for um, in addition to the data. But yeah, it's just like what we were saying earlier. How can we gain an edge? Um, and data can help us find find where that edge lies. I agree. Yeah. Um, yeah, dude, that's pretty sick. So were you doing any like Moneyball type analytics for the Dodgers? I guess, or, or like, I what, mean, what, what kind of data were you looking at? Right. I guess, I guess it, I guess everything that I was doing or they were doing can be considered quote unquote money ball. Um, I was mostly looking at player injury data and trying to create sort of a very clean and coherent database for, for player injury, uh, player injury data that the, the analysts on the team were interested in analyzing um, in the future to try to predict injury. Like you can imagine there, there's a lot of value in like if Cole Stryler is uh, a college baseball pitcher, right? Like if I can take your data, um, your college data or something about your pitching motion and say you at a high risk for injury, I might not want to draft you on my team, right? Like, and that could save me, you know, potentially tens of millions of dollars, right? So um, it can all be considered money balls. So I was working with a lot of that injury data, you know, plenty of other analysts working on other problems. So it was, Mm -hmm. uh, um, yes, everything is, is money ball in some way, shape or form, yeah. Yeah. And when do you start this next internship? Yeah. So this, uh, this should start second week of June of this year. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I, I should be joining the, the Orioles in, uh, in Baltimore as long as, uh, the season happens. I don't know if you followed the news, but there's some uncertainty as to whether the season is going to start on time. Because um, of COVID or what? No, dude, because the owners in the, in the players association are in a disagreement over basically baseball economics. They, the, the current agreement expired after last season and currently they're negotiating a new one, but it's taking a long time. <laughs> what is this agreement? This agreement is primarily based on economics 
most importantly, like things like what should the player minimum salaries be? Um, How should we treat minor league players? Um, How much should a team be able to spend on players uh, before being punished for spending too much? Um, Interesting. So sort of like a salary cap idea. It's not exactly a salary cap, but the idea is like the Yankees are richer than the Oakland A's, right? And it would be unfair to just let the Yankees buy all the really amazing players yeah. <laughs> and form a super team, right? So the, the the primary kind of economic issue is where should we draw the line? Where should we draw that threshold? And um, the, the, the owners... Um, the, the players want to be paid more by the owners and the owners don't want to pay the players too much. Right. So they're, they're in a disagreement. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Um, it's like the balance of powers. In baseball. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but it's already pushed back spring training kind of. So <laughs> oh wow, it's, it's kind of un, you know, it, it'd be like NFL football or motocross racing, like the season being delayed. Wow. It's isn't that kind of unreal? So I think that they couldn't have an agreement. Yeah, I mean, these are things that, as a like a non-baseball follower, like I, I don't even think of uh, in existence. So yes. that's it's kind of crazy to hear that. Um, yeah, yeah. How long um, are these in- agreements valid for? Uh, that's a good question. I'm not a huge expert. I think hmm, that's really. I don't want to say the wrong thing. Maybe. No more than 10 years, maybe five to 10 years Okay, is my guess, but don't quote me on that. Okay. <laughs> um, Dang, dude. Well, that would suck if it gets pushed back. Are you still <laughs> going to move out there or like? I mean, I, just, I have a hard, start? the consensus seem the season is supposed to start basically very end of March, beginning mm-hmm. of April is when the, the season begins. And so oh, to think it. that the season still would not be happening by June is kind of unthinkable. Yeah. Um, but like we've said, crazy things can happen. Russia can invade Ukraine, right? <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I know. Oh. I think there's a high chance it happens and I'm planning on moving out there. Um, though crazier things have happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dang, Dude. I mean, that would be, I mean, basically like you get to go to all the games, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's, so it's not like your traditional nine to five desk job. Exactly. Exactly. There's a, there are some very cool perks in terms of being able to go to any game, any home game I would want to. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like as a baseball fan, that's like, what else can you ask for? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, I probably... I mean, dude, come out for a game. I'm sure I can get you tickets. <laughs> I would love to. Yeah. You know, you got like, me to, to the Dodgers game that, that one time. Oh, that's right. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's a big advantage and potentially I would even like to travel, you know, just as we were saying, it's, it could be nice to not be so sedentary in the same office all day, every day. If I could maybe travel a bit with the team, I think that could be fun. So, um, lots of opportunities we'll have to see what what comes of it <laughs> yeah um yeah that's pretty dope I, so how many more years of school do you have 
Yeah, so it's one, one more. It's, it's a bit up in the air. Technically, I'll I'll be done by in a year, March okay. or uh, May 2023, June 2023. I'll be finished. So there, there's a chance I'll kind of race through a little bit quicker, and I could be done, um, say by the end of this year, this calendar year. Mm-hmm. Um, it it's a little flexible. On, there's uh, no rush. <laughs> there's no rush. Um, there's some flexibility, but uh, yeah, it's it's been cool being here in here in Chicago. I, I've really liked it so far. So, um, dude, I'm surprised you like Chicago. You said it was like your top ranking city now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's I crazy. Think Chicago is my favorite place I've lived. Wow. Yeah, I. I mean, I've only heard like more of the other side of that where it's like oh chicago's cold don't go there you know um <laughs> so hearing that like when i was in mississippi doing the the internship, oh yes yeah yeah one of the dudes was moving to mississippi uh well, well l- l- let me preface with <laughs> after my 12 weeks there i was so relieved to be moving back to california weather like it was <laughs> the biggest relief <laughs> and just it was so hot and humid and yeah random like vicious thunderstorms in the middle of the day and then it's like sunny (laughs) an hour later it's like what is happening and one of the other interns was moving from chicago to mississippi because of the weather in mississippi he liked it so much really he hated the cold in chicago and so when he said that dude i ranked chicago like lower than mississippi in my mind in terms of like desirable place to live and wow for you to rank it number one i was like no way (laughs) yeah i mean like i think we all have our our own sort of preferences inherent preferences and you're a san diego kid like you're used to this dude i know all day every day that's my advantage (laughs) so um i could certainly see the the appeal of leaving i can certainly see you know weather is uh winters in chicago kind of wearing you down wanting to escape to a warmer place um, but I mean, that's something you're used to though. Like Colorado, you grew up. Yeah. Um, yeah. Colorado is cold. And, um, I don't know. I think I'm a little less picky than, than most regarding where I might live. I mean, I know like Thomas and Brent, they're, they're both kind of gunning on California long-term. Yeah. A little bit. Um, and I'm, I'm a little, I mean, I would love to go to California, but I also really like it here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, so um, I'm very attracted to sort of these city environments with a lot of energy and a lot of things going on, um, I think is a big thing for me. Yeah, I think it's a it's a good mindset to have. Um, like, uh, I think being willing to go try new places at a young age will result in like so much more life experience and opportunities. Right. Um, than those who are very set on never leaving their hometown or even mm-hmm. a state. Uh, right. I, I think that mindset is very, is going to be very helpful in the long run. Right. Yeah. We're young. I mean, dude, we're, we're yeah. so young and, and we have the flexibility to, to move and to travel if we, if we really want to. And I am a believer that to a large degree, you know, travel can be a great teacher. Um, and to, to, to kind of make the most of uh, what travel can teach us, I think now is the time to, to do it while we're young and we can see some new cities and 
even if even if we're only there for a short time, right? Or for a quick vacation. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. And I know you're thinking about potentially Austin, which I think is going to be super fun. Dude, uh, yeah, I'm very excited. I can't wait to see what you think. I, I mean, what's interesting about location is the location that you're in, or I'll just say the environment that you're in, mm-hmm. uh, has a direct impact on the thoughts that flow through your head. Uh, mm-hmm. and when I live at home, when I, you know, after living on my own for five years and come home for a month or so, yeah, I realize that the thoughts that are in my head are very similar to the ones that were in my head in high school. Um, mm. and when I go to a city and have a fresh start and I'm sitting in cafes during the day or working in cafes, uh, the thoughts in my head are a lot more, um, mature and, adultish and just <laughs> creative, I would say different. Um, really? Wow. So I, I think, I mean, especially as, as an entrepreneur who relies on your thoughts, your thinking mm-hmm. and your intuition, like you got to set your environment first. Um, and mm-hmm. that's part of why I'm going to Austin is because right it's a new environment. It's a whole new way of thinking. It's a whole new friend group conversations. Like it's going to be many, uh, many new ideas flowing. Um, right. And I'm not just talking business ideas, but I'm saying just ideas in general, like who knows, maybe you meet a friend who does this thing on the weekends and that becomes like your next hobby for the next 10 years. And then through that hobby, you meet someone who, does, you know, it's like, yeah. you never know the long-term outcome of uh, a new environment or new opportunities. So absolutely, I think when you're young, like you said, like you got to go experience them because yeah, I, I mean, the, one of the best quotes I've heard by Mark Zuckerberg is the biggest risk in life is not taking any risk. And I'm oh, not man. necessarily saying that traveling is risk, but I, I think it's opportunity and you know, if you take no risk and go for no opportunity in life, uh, you're guaranteed to have what you have. And if you don't like what you have, I mean, there's so many people I know, dude, they like, they're like, ah, one day I'll be rich, you know, one day mm-hmm. I'll do this, but then they never like set that up for that to happen. And it's always just a dream, you know? And yeah. I think unless you take risk and change your environment and your ideas and the people who you talk to, mm-hmm. your dreams will always stay dreams. Right. Yeah, I, that is such a, an amazing quote, I think. I mean, I've even, I, I try to think that I, about that idea myself sometimes. And it's, it's so true. I think humans have this tendency to, we want to play it safe, play it a little bit comfortable, right? And often we're scared to take that leap, right? That leap to a new place or a leap into that conversation with a stranger right? Like we're scared because it's, it feels uncomfortable and, and whatnot, but actually by not doing those things, you're totally taking a risk. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, that's not necessarily licensed to go and run around with your, run around, uh, with your head cut off like a chicken or anything, you know, being silly, like you still have to calculate the risk, but, uh, that's, um, I, I totally think that that applies to your situation and moving to Austin and uh, where you are in your 
you need to like where you are, right? Like (laughs) it, it sucks waking up in the same place every day and just disliking it. Like you're never, I mean, it's heavy. It's heavy on the mind. It's heavy doing when you have a job that you don't like, and you're living in a place that you don't like, it consumes a lot of space in your mind. And it's, uh, it's like, you know, going on a hike with a very heavy backpack. It's like, why is this backpack on my back? Yeah, (laughs) You know? Um, but yeah, dude, I, I'm pretty excited for it. I, I, I I mean, another thing to add to what we're talking about is Mm -hmm. I think the expectation of life for a lot of people is that life is very linear and that there's a path to follow. And we're kind Mm of brought up to see the world that way where we go to high school and then college and then get a job and then work your whole mm-hmm. life. And then you retire. Right. And it's just, mm-hmm. as long as you hop on that path, like you're going to be, you're going to be set. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the reality of life is that um, life is a lot more fractal. And the way I would explain fractal is fractal mm-hmm. is like a tree with lots of branches. So you start, let's say you start at the stump and you go up and every branch is like a potential decision you make in life. Right. And there starts with like very few. And then the second you go mm-hmm. on this branch, now there's a whole bunch of uh, smaller branches branching off of this branch. And then you take that branch and now there's even more branches. And it's this right. idea that there's like infinite opportunity. Um, and I think the way you find that opportunity is not by looking for it. It's almost discovered. It's like math. Like we, we discovered math. We didn't create mm-hmm. math. Um, and I think opportunity is discovered. Like the way I got this job mm-hmm. that I'm currently working at, I didn't take the normal path by applying and sending in my resume and then getting interviewed by the recruiters. Like I didn't want to go to this business event, but I got talked into it. It was like a week long entrepreneurship. (laughs) I ended up going and day one, I was wearing a NASA shirt and this guy was wearing an Apple shirt. And he was like, Hey, is that a NASA employee shirt? I was like, yeah, it is. I was like, is that an Apple employee shirt? He's like, yeah, it is. So we started talking, wow. we hit it off and he's like, Hey, send me your resume and I'll send it to my hiring manager. And that's how I got the job, right? It was this weird, random event that I went to. I happened to meet a guy. He happened to work there. He happened, they happened to be hiring, like everything lined up perfect. And there was an opportunity that got presented, but you would have never been able to plan that moment. Right. You had to, you had to take that leap, even though you, you didn't want to. And even though you, you didn't, you didn't know what was on the other side, like you didn't know where you were leaping, but yeah. it's almost like you're leaping into the darkness, trusting that there's like a pillow to land on, you know? Right. I mean, that's, that's what's a beautiful way of saying it. That's what's uh, hard when you're at the frontier of something, like when, when your success depends on um, breaking through a frontier. And I think that's what makes it hard for entrepreneurs is a lot of entrepreneurs tried to solve a problem at the frontier and mm-hmm. the solution is in the dark. They don't know what it's going to look like. They don't know if it's going to work. And I feel like in math, you're often operating at the frontier. You're solving, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. you work through the, the basics and then you get to these problems that haven't been solved yet, right? You're solving <laughs> in the dark kind of. Right, right. And the frontier is an interesting concept because I think, you know, you ask, why do people stay on that path? Why do people not take risk? And I think people are scared of the dark. Like they like mm-hmm. operating when the lights are turned on where they can see. Right. And they, uh, I mean, it all comes down to like decision-making, right? Like certainty and right. decision-making there's, 
more certainty and people i think um lean into certainty absolutely i i couldn't i couldn't agree more and I, not that i want to put words in other people's mouths but I almost get this sense, and I think like you sort of noted, we're maybe our generation is becoming more familiar with these notions, but it's like kind of sitting in, in your comfort zone, yeah. you sort of know deep down, like in your bones, that that's not really what you should be doing. Well, and that's why right? David Goggins speaks to a lot even of people, though it's dude, safe. because Even though it's safe, yes. Yeah. I mean, David Goggins is the guy that spent the first 25 years of his life drinking milkshakes, getting fat on the couch. And there was a person deep down that kicked in and he became a fucking Navy SEAL. And now he's an ultra marathon runner. Like, I think every single one of us has a David Goggins within us. And that's, dude, that's actually something that helps me get through hard things. Um, Like, let's say I'm on a run or, you Mm -hmm. you know, something's hard at work or whatever. Like, I try to find my David Goggins. (laughs) Yeah. And it, you got to kick it in. You got to kick Whatever it, in. it is. Yeah, absolutely. And I even think on a related note, like one sort of wise thing, I think I read in a book once and I've heard in other motivational YouTube videos from God, people like Goggins or Jocko Willink, you know, these kinds of guys, right? It's like mm-hmm. passion for an activity stems from action, right? Yeah. It's like you wake up in the morning, right? you most of the time you're not going to feel motivated to go do your workout right maybe when it's fresh and new you feel motivated and you want to go but you know six months later you're like ah do i want to go to the gym right now or even do i want to get out of bed right and oftentimes it's kind of like no i don't really want to like my bed is warm like or i feel comfortable in my house not at the gym right But it's like once you step out of your house or you lift your first weight at the gym, it's like that's when kind of the passion starts to flow, right? That's when, the you know, I think some of it is probably chemical, the endorphins and, uh, you know, whatever it may be, the adrenaline, right? Like it just takes that first bit of action or that leap of faith, like you're saying. And and that's where the, the, the the cool stuff can happen. And you may Dude. fail and you may fail, but you're guaranteed to fail if you don't do it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Failure is guaranteed if you don't try. Right. Um, right. We're all going to die. Why not try? I mean, dude, like <laughs> <laughs> I have, I mean, what also really gets me through moments where I don't want to do something mm-hmm. or where I feel like settling like ah let me just take the easy route like life is hard Mm -hmm. you know when i have that those sorts of thoughts it's like you have one life and you are in your body like it's you that's in your body it's you are entirely in control of whether or not you become the next tesla or whether you not you just become another guy who worked his whole life and died and is totally unknown Mm -hmm. like who do you want to be? Which one do you right. want to be? You have one shot at life. Yep. I totally agree. And, you know, I even read some of, uh, this is very similar to even just some of the stoicism stuff I read and <laughs> some of that philosophy, but it's like, 
we exactly we have one life we're on this universe for like a blip of an instant a tiny fraction fraction a fraction a fraction of time right so number one it's like we got to make the most of it right like we have such a precious amount of time we need to make the most of it and sort of by the same token it's i sort of think like why we we need to to try our hardest to do our best but why take ourselves so dang seriously yeah. right like if we fail what is the big deal it, there's never you know? a big deal right like you fail and, and what matters is how you respond to your failure right like did you put your best foot forward and did you let your failure stop you right like these are kinds of the questions that you that i think we should be asking more more of um because if you respond to the challenge and even if it doesn't go the way you wanted it wanted it to if you can bounce back or be positive about it or try again like yeah laugh at yourself it, it's not a big deal like <laughs> well i think that also the same way that one person can play blackjack as gambling and one person can play blackjack as investing. Mm -hmm. um, I think you could say the same thing about wanting a million dollars, right? Like some people, it'll always be a wish. It'll always mm -hmm. be a dream come true, uh, you know, totally mm -hmm. unlikely, but maybe one day they'll win the lottery, you know? And then some yes. people I can look at now and be like, you're that guy's going to be a millionaire um, because he's taking actionable steps and actually increasing the probability of it happening and when you purely rely on chance typically things don't go in your favor um right so you know the family member that's like ah, i want to be a millionaire and they, that's all they talk about but they don't ever take that <laughs> step it's like yeah you know you're never gonna be that sorry yeah i mean maybe you'll win the lottery but yeah it's a journey that requires work absolutely absolutely, yeah. absolutely. um one other thing that i wanted to talk about is taleb because I know you're also a big fan of Taleb. Yeah. Um, yeah. Speaking of, I was noticing this book behind your left shoulder. Is that a Taleb book? Of course. <laughs> uh, Anti-fragile. I have a really good friend here who is a way bigger Taleb fan than even I am. And I really, I, I mean, I, I only have read one of his books, uh, The Black Swan. I need to read more. I need to read all of them. Yeah. Um, but e even in our earlier conversation, I mean, everything we've sort of talked about is so related, so interconnected, right? Like one takeaway from the Black Swan by Taleb that related to what we were saying is he, he makes this point where, you know, like in our lives, there are sort of these opportunities that occur to us very rarely, right? And if you're unwilling to step outside of your everyday routine to at least explore these extraordinarily seeming opportunities, then you're just simply doing it wrong. Like if you think, you know, it's sort of hard for me to exactly say what to articulate exactly what he was saying, but he was saying that in our lives that we get presented with very unique and rare situations, but could have massive gains. Maybe it's a small chance, but they could be massive. And we would be, we are foolish to not go after those. 
Yeah. Um, well, it, it's this, there are negative black swans and there's positive black swans. A mm -hmm. negative black swan is kind of a devastating event. It's like this war that was happening. I mean, I don't know if that was a black swan. I think some people knew a lot more about it, but to a lot mm -hmm. of people who just started hearing about it on the news, like to them, it was a black swan. Um, right. And just probably, I would say COVID was maybe a black swan. Some would agree or disagree, but yeah, yeah, it's all um, debatable, isn't it? <laughs> when I was learning about black swans, it was typically the devastating events, like the financial crash and pandemics and stuff like that. But what you're talking about more are positive black swans, like the mm -hmm. investments that could pay off a thousand times, but the downside is pretty limited. Yes. And, um, I agree. Like that is what I'm chasing. It's like, you only need to be right once you can yep. pursue a hundred of those and 99 fail. And if you're right, once it pays off, that's how venture capital works. Um, I mean, so I have not read the black swan in its entirety mm. through mm -hmm. his other books. I have a pretty good idea of it. Like in, uh, fooled by randomness was the first book I read. And now right. I'm like three quarters of the way through anti-fragile, which, uh -huh. I am reading it slowly because I love it so much. I don't want it really? to end. It's like a movie that you don't that's want to That's my end. buddy's favorite one, Anti-Fragile. So it's I feel like best. that's... It's okay. the best. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's probably my most gifted book to people right now. Okay. These are actually copies that I'm gifting. Oh, um, well, uh, send one my way. For, uh, yeah, dude. <laughs> for all my um, gracious time on your podcast. I think I'd For really sure. <laughs> <laughs> send me your address i'll buy you one no um, you, you asking me to be on this podcast was a gift in itself don't worry about it oh <laughs> you're too sweet. Um, but one of the favorite parts in anti-fragile that oh, are you familiar with the concept or do you want like a like do you want a little intro into it um the way he starts the book is he says he kind of like asks the reader, like, what is the different or what is the opposite of fragile? Uh, <laughs> durable. Okay. Durable, strong, <laughs> robust. Yeah. Right. Um, but he says that that is totally incorrect. Anti-fragile. Um, <laughs> right. Think about what fragile is, right? Fragile is something that under stress, mm -hmm. it breaks. Um, so the opposite of something that breaks under stress is something that grows under stress, right? So he says, there's not a word that we have in our understanding to represent that. Um, so a lot of people think strong is the opposite, but he said, no, strong is a neutral word. It's like kind of in the middle, right? It's, it's not, mm. it doesn't grow under pressure. It can, it can withstand pressure, but it doesn't grow. An example of something yeah. that grows from pressure is like lifting out or lifting out, working out, you lift weights, yeah. you break down your muscles, you put pressure on your muscles and then they grow. And he says th that pattern exists all throughout society. And, mm -hmm. um, it's so interesting, dude. It's so interesting. It's, uh, Oh, I was gonna say one, one of the, the points, um, that, one of the biggest takeaways of the book so far for me, like I said, I'm only three quarters in, so who knows oh. what's, what's coming next. Uh, you never oh. know with Taleb, but he gives this analogy or not. A, he basically says there's, there's two brothers and one, oh. I, I forget the exact details. So I'm just going to kind of make them up, but uh, he's like, one is a taxi driver and one is a banker and the mm -hmm. banker has a pretty high annual salary. He gets paid the same every year, every month. He gets the same uh, paycheck. 
Right. The taxi driver, on the other hand, may have really good days or he may have really bad days. Um, so to put that in like statistical terms, the taxi driver has higher day-to-day variance and, <laughs> uh, and the, 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 the banker has more stability, right? Sure, sure, sure. He says that the banker is a lot more prone to negative black swans um, because wow. the day-to-day stability is actually long-term instability, right? Let's say uh, the company goes out of business. Boom, he lost his job. See, he mm-hmm. went from 100,000 a year to zero, like total black swan. Whereas mm-hmm. the taxi driver who has more day-to-day variants has more longer-term stability, right? He has thousands mm-hmm. of employers. If one person decides to stop taking the taxi, he just gets another person to take the taxi, right? So uh, he says that there is long-term stability and short-term variance, basically when it, with systems that have short-term variance. And that's so interesting. And then wow. on top of that, he gives a great analogy of a turkey. Um, and the whole thing is don't be a turkey. And when uh, I signed this book over to um, my last friend, yeah. I, I said, you know, hey, hope you enjoy this book. Just don't be a turkey. So it was like probably one of my is biggest- the, the feeding the turkey analogy where- the turkey gets fed every day and then he yes. gets slaughtered. Did he talk about that? I think he talked about that the black swan. He he does that. Um yes, so yes. He, he basically the, the point is that you know if you're a turkey and let's say it's October, so um Thanksgiving is one month away, and you have no idea that Thanksgiving is one month away, right? Like mm-hmm. to, to the turkey, you're getting fed every day. And obviously the, um, the farmer, or would you call them farmers is trying to bulk you up for Thanksgiving. So every day he feeds you a little bit more. So in your short term stability mindset, you think, wow, my life is great. I'm getting fed every day. And each day I get fed even more. And you have no idea that Thanksgiving is right around. Anyways, (laughs) a week before Thanksgiving, the farmer comes out, you think you're going to get fed and he cuts your head off. Right. Negative black swan. You thought your life was stable, yet you were prone to a black swan. Anyways, the whole thing is don't be a turkey. And a lot of like, like the banker is essentially a turkey, right? Like he has the stable job and then boom, devastating goes to zero. And that's kind of what's uh, gotten me more into wanting to do like freelance work and kind of smaller projects. Right. And I, I think you can kind of design your life in that way. I mean, it's, it's not normal when you tell your grandma you're doing it, she's <laughs> going to be like, Oh my God, what's, what's my grandson doing? He's going crazy. Um, right. But to, I, I see it a lot in the, in our generation, I see a lot of people living this new way of, of life where they are project-based. They work um, for six months at a time for somebody mm-hmm. or something and they're doing it. 10 hours a week and they have multiple projects that they're working on. And then when they're done, they stop and they go to Bali. <laughs> my, my brother, right. Evan, who was on the podcast last, I mean, that's kind of uh-huh. how he works. He does like day-to-day or door-to-door sales when he wants on his own schedule. And then he can quit. Or it's not really quitting. He's a contract worker. So he just stops working. And then yes. he travels, he comes back and picks up his job again. I mean, wow. it's kind of the move. Uh, especially for like younger people when you can do that. I mean, I get it. If you have kids and a house and all these obligations that you've committed yourself to, 
you might want more of this short-term stability. I get it, but right. It's just right. like a general rule of thumb. Like don't be a turkey in life. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. I kind of remember that from the black swan and it even just reminds me of, uh, you know, not that I'm an expert in markets or the economy, but you know, like how in leading up to the recession at the end of 2007 and 2008, you know, the housing market was just out of this world for a while. And it became this bubble that ultimately popped, right? Like these, these uh, lenders and credit rating companies um, just became way too optimistic and um, way too much money was being lent around and yeah. lent around because of the, the sort of positive nature of the system. And then all of a sudden it's, completely untenable and crashes right did you see the movie the big short about that i never watched it oh dude it's so good so taleb um taleb basically talks about that the financial crisis in his book and that is an example of a real life um anti-fragile bet so think about it you had a Mm. few guys shorting the housing market like Mm -hmm. everyone thought the housing market was the most stable asset class you could buy. Yep. There were a few guys who were shorting it. So what does that mean? So that means you short the housing market and next month it doesn't drop. So that means you have to pay a premium, right? Yeah. And so every month you're paying these premiums and you're losing money. Yeah. So they're paying millions and millions of dollars on these premiums, on these um uh on these short positions that, that they had. Right. They were losing money. They're burning cash. And then boom, they have a huge payoff. Right. <laughs> so it's it's this concept of like uh, losing, losing, losing a little bit, and then you gain a lot. It's it's uh an asymmetrical Ex- bet. And yeah, that's like exponentially ex- more. Yeah. Than you lost. Yeah. And yeah. that is an example of of anti-fragility in real life. <laughs> right. Yeah. I remember he even talked about a little bit about you know, kind of a barbell strategy to investing and yeah, um, these sorts of things. So it, it's on my list. It's uh, awesome stuff. I yeah, I think it's probably one of the most important books I've read. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's I'm I'm gonna put it up next on my list. Hearing yeah. what you have to say, and my buddy, it's 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 coming next. Good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I Taleb is just so important i think mm-hmm. for any young person wanting to kind of think independently of the system right uh, right and, and critically and independently the system yeah. but yeah but like just um not get caught up in old ways of doing things just for the sake of doing it because it's always been done that way like right. he, he kind of pulls you out of that and let you approach it from more of a mathematical perspective. Like right. all he talks about, we saying. Yeah. it's st- under the hood. It's just statistics and it's, yeah. you know, increasing your expected value of whatever you're doing. Right. Decision-making and decision-making and, um, and it's really cool. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I, I could not agree more. And it, I think the more the people read this sort of stuff, the, the better off people are. I agree. Um, it's hard so, to read. I don't think I would have like fully absorbed it in high school. And I, I even feel like I'm totally not absorbing it now. Like there's definitely, right. he goes on these tangents sometimes where I'm like, okay, I didn't <laughs> totally follow that, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, I'm putting it next on my list. hundred percent. Yeah. That's cool. Um, well, 
that is kind of all I had in mind uh, to go over. Yeah, we've been going for uh, almost a couple hours now, now, haven't we? Yeah. Yeah, we started um, around six. Dang, that went by fast. Um, yeah. So, yeah, dude, thanks for coming on the podcast. And, uh, you know, I'd love to have you on again. Um, we had some great discussion and I hope people enjoy. <laughs> yeah, man, I really appreciate you uh, extending the the invitation. It's, it's quite an honor. <laughs> we finally made it happen. <laughs> what, what are you calling your podcast now? What is this podcast called now? The, the name is kind of up in the air. Okay. It was Mind Over Monkey. I currently have it listed as the Stryler Pod, I think. Mm-hmm. But that's not the final name. Okay. I, 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 it, I feel like names, when you hear the right name, it, it's uh, pretty obvious and it hits you like, oh, that's the name. And I haven't had one yes. of those moments yet. Right. And there's no rush. It's easy to change, you know? Yes. Okay. So awesome. The Stryler pod, the Stryler pod. <laughs> Maybe one day we'll, we'll have a pod that we can do it out of. <laughs> Dude. That'd be pretty sick. Like the, was this, did you say this was the first virtual podcast? This is the first virtual podcast. I think it went pretty okay. well. We'll see how the audio turns out. I, I hope the audio turns out. Okay. I mean, I know I'm, I'm not an Apple employee, so I can't quite afford uh, your equipment, <laughs> but <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I just mean like, like zoom. I don't know if zoom reduces it or, uh, right we're doing this on zoom obviously but yeah yeah cool man i look forward to uh seeing where the podcast goes and um yeah this is this has been this has been a lot of fun (laughs) cool all right dude well i'll see you later and thanks for coming on thanks Tyler. see ya bye